we have a, a friend with us today who is really no guest because he's been here several times. He's actually one of the very first guest teachers that we've ever had at Ethos all the way back in our Olentangy Elementary, like Meadows Elementary Day. Just, just out of curiosity, can I see your hand if you ever came to a service at Meadows Elementary? Can I see your hand? Oh, quite, quite a few of you. Wow, like more than I actually anticipated. Well, well, he was here with us way back in the day. In fact, Pastor Noah Nickel, pastor's one of my favorite churches, and I, I mean that with full sincerity, in Lakewood, Ohio, just on the west side of Cleveland. They're getting ready to plant a second campus in Ohio City, downtown, downtown Cleveland. And I often tell people who are moving to Cleveland, I say, one, why would you ever move to Cleveland? But two, if you have to go, if you must go, if you must, then you got to check out King's Church because it's just an absolutely beautiful community of people led by a, a man who has actually been one of my best friends, if not my best friend, for 20 years. We were just reflecting on it last night at dinner, like 20 years of friendship is a long time. And outside of my wife, no other relationship has shaped and formed me more than my relationship with him. So you all know I'm kind of emotional. So even just saying it, I'm thinking back. I'm like, man, I'm just so grateful for his relationship over the years. He deeply loves God deeply loves people, and he's a Green Bay Packers fan. We won't hold that against him, but otherwise, uh, would you honor God by honoring and putting our friends or our hands together for our friend, Pastor Noah Nickel, this morning? Hey, good morning, everybody. It is um, so good to be amongst family. I echo everything Jordan said about me. I am a great friend, and I have... Um, I'm happy to be here, and because I've been here so many times, and the relationship that's here, I don't feel like I need to do a lot of uh, pre-work, so we're going to jump in in just a second to the series that you are in, which uh, I love and have been able to follow along, and hopefully you're leaning in and grabbing a hold of some of these ideas, these concepts, these principles, so that we can begin to apply them to our life to really see ultimately what God has for us, the people that he's calling us to be. I have to admit, um, I love being here amongst family and so many close friends. And really, I consider Jordan uh, to have been up to about a month ago my best friend. Now he is my former best friend. The reason being is a few months earlier, he reached out and said, hey, would you come preach? And I said, absolutely. What do you want me to preach on? He said, how about solitude and silence? And I was like, that's me. I'm an introvert. That's my jam. Like, I would love to do that. And then just a couple weeks ago, he texted me out of the blue and said, hey, can you come and preach about pain and suffering? <laughs> and I said, that's a far jump from solitude and silence, man. But I'm here. It's good to know you as my former best friend. Thanks for setting me up well. So John chapter 16 is where we'll be today. John chapter 16, if you have your Bibles. If you're new to church, it's uh, kind of to the middle right in the beginning of what's known as the New Testament. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell the story of Jesus, and we're going to be in the last one of those, John chapter 16, picking up mid-conversation that Jesus is actually having with his disciples, and as is the custom of your house, would you stand for the reading of God's word today? We'll be in John 16, beginning in verse 31, just for a few verses down to 33. It says this, do you now believe, Jesus replied. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each of you to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Now I've told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. 
in this world, you will have trouble. Probably one of Jesus's favorite promises to all of us. But take heart or take courage, I have overcome the world. That last verse, verse 33, I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. There's a, there's a location for this peace. It's in me, you're gonna have it. And in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. I, I would love for the next few moments we have together to talk to you from this subject, uh, the promise of peace and a warning about pain. The promise of peace and a warning about pain. And one more time, could we pray, Holy Spirit, would you come? Be with us. You are our teacher, our leader, our guide. Would you teach us, lead us, and guide us into the truth of your word? Make this uniquely personal for each and every one of us. God, you know our hearts. You know the things that we have told and shared with so many people, and you know the things that we've never told a soul. So would you come and do what only you can do this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. I love your working definition uh, of spiritual formation, the development of a heart for God. And so if I could, maybe just in our time together, take that working definition and then give you up front kind of maybe my working thesis as a, an attachment to that, which would be um, the development of a heart for God and a heart with God at all times. What I wanna do is work through three different realities that we have this morning. And in keeping with your P words in your series, they are three P words that alliterate with paradox, presence, and peace. So working through three movements this morning, paradox, presence, and peace. And I will uh, assume that you know, whether you've ever preached a message or not, to be tasked with the um, amazing responsibility and opportunity to share about pain and suffering that carries a little bit of weight. And so um, the tone and the posture in this room this morning might be a little heavier than lighter, but I hope, hope it's not heavy in, in a cumbersome way. I hope there's a burden that the Holy Spirit then undergirds and we see that in partnership in life as challenging and as difficult as life can be, there is hope and there is peace that God offers us. Paradox, presence, and peace. First paradox, executed, beheaded, crucified upside down, suicide, speared to death, uh, led the wife of a Roman governor to Christ and in retaliation was cruelly then put to death. Another crucifixion, stabbed to death, martyred, stoned and clubbed to death, killed after refusing to make sacrifices to the sun god, death by burning, and then died of old age while exiled to an island after surviving being cast into a boiling pot of oil. This is how the men who heard Jesus tell them repeatedly, hey, peace is yours because I'm giving it to you, ended up meeting the end of their lives. Now, I, I was raised in a Christian home, and to be honest, nobody told me that part. When I was eight years old, I can remember it in my bedroom, sitting on the blue carpeting with my mom and my dad saying, I wanna ask Jesus into my heart. They're like, absolutely. They didn't give me the forewarning about how the people closest to Jesus ended up finishing out their race. I thought, I'm gonna give my life to Jesus, and as best as I know, as an eight-year-old, everything's gonna be good, and life's gonna be great, and this Sunday in Sunday school, the flannel graph is gonna make a little bit more sense. I'm gonna be able to sing Father Abraham with a little bit more energy. I'm excited to know Jesus as my Savior, God as my Father, and Abraham as an, another father uh, who likes us to dance and wiggle around. Like, this is, this is gonna be awesome. But death, torture, suffering, for trusting in Jesus? 
We never sang those songs in Sunday school. Uh, it was 20 years ago. I was 21 years old, and the church that I was a part of back in Wisconsin had a bit of a, a mini revival that was going on. A one-night meeting turned into a week-long meeting, which turned into a month-long meeting, and resulted in many of us being in church every single night of the week for hours, worshiping and praying and crying out to God for a move, that he would move, and, and we would see his spirit and his presence made manifest amongst us and our family and our friends. And we would do this every night. And then throughout the day, we kind of went on these evangelistic missions. It was, hey, we'd go in at night, we'd get filled up. And I had some of the most powerful life forming, uh, marking moments in those nights in God's presence. Things today I still carry with me, prophetic words that were uttered that have shaped my future, things I still long for and believe God for that we will see again that I got to just get a little bit of a glimpse of. So those are the evenings. Then during the days we would go out, we would share our faith with anybody that we could find on the street. And I can remember 20 years ago as a 21-year-old being deeply formed in the presence of God, those moments in church at night. But then there was one day on our evangelistic uh, Save the World Jesus missions that I walked up to two guys in a Kmart parking lot. They were both probably about 10 years older than I was at that time, looked a little rough, but I was filled with the confidence and boldness of Jesus and the time that I was in his presence last night. So I went up and I talked to him. I said, hey, hey, before you guys get in your car, do you have a minute? And they both kind of already mid-opening their doors look at me and pause for a second. And one of them, what is it? I said, hey, uh, I just want to let you know God has an amazing plan for your life. The driver immediately turns his back, finishes getting in the car, and closes the door on me. The other gentleman who took a drag of his cigarette and blew it disparagingly in my direction get, got ready to get back in the car as well, but then he stopped and he looked at me and he said, no, man, my mom prayed to that God every single day in her hospital bed as she died of cancer. He never showed up. So where is he at if he's real? And then he finished getting in the car and leaving me there on the cold Kmart parking lot in a season of my life where I'm deeply formed by the goodness and the presence of God. But now I'm also face to face with the reality of pain and suffering. How do you live in a paradox of that? How do you live with the idea, the notion, what theologians and apologists call theodicy? What we might call maybe in normal street language, which is what we use in our heart is, if God is so good, why do bad things happen? The problem of pain and suffering in our world. And I don't have time today, nor is it my assignment to try to give the apologetic approach of why we believe pain and suffering exists. What I'd rather do is just start off in the beginning acknowledging that it is true. That all of us, regardless of where we're at in life, are going to feel and sense and live in trouble and pain and suffering. As one pastor confessed, he says, I, I believe God was great. I just hit a season of my life where I didn't know if he was any good. I mean, I, mean, I believed that he loved me, but with everything I was going through in my life, he said, I just wasn't sure if he actually liked me. Don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Don't be afraid. To which I would have to give a response to Jesus kindly and with as much honor as I can. Um, that seems way easier said than done. 
I get those words probably carry life and meaning and intentionality and an invitation to the life that you offer me, but it seems like those roll off your tongue way easier than they are for me to actually live out in my life. G.K. Chesterton, who is a great writer and thinker, said the worst moment for the atheist is when he is really thankful and has nobody to thank. I think it can be equally true in reverse. Some of the worst moments for the Christian is when they're suffering and the God they worship so often, the God they thanked and they prayed to, they now find themselves blaming, questioning, and at best doubting, at worst completely abandoning. So before we go any further, and it gets any heavier in here and I never get invited back, although this is your fault, um, <laughs> let me give you, if I could just say my working belief uh, for today's teaching summed up in one sentence. Jesus' promise of peace does not guarantee the absence of trouble or pain. Jesus' promise of peace does not guarantee the absence of trouble or pain. Again, echoing those words, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace because in this world you will have trouble. But would you take heart because I've overcome the world. There, there are a few things that are as universal as things like pain and loss and suffering. Um, Jerry Sitzer in his book, A Grace Disguise, says that all people suffer loss. Being alive means suffering loss. And loss is unique to each and every one of us, how we want to define that. Loss could be defined as a literal loss, maybe of a loved one. Maybe it's a loss of an opportunity, a relationship that ended that you hoped was going to be lifelong, a loss of a friend who maybe turned their back on you, loss of health or financial stability or anything else you feel like has been taken from you. And listen, I'm going to be honest, I, I completely get it. As a pastor and as a person, I would much rather hear the messages of like victory and faith and healing and miracles and living on the mountaintop of God's power at work in my life. I would honestly rather teach and preach those messages to an extent. And I know why so many people in our culture gravitate to a gospel message that seems to promise them that everything their heart could desire is going to be granted to them by God and nothing bad would ever happen because why would God ever allow that to take place? Eugene Peterson writes and says, what we need to know is that suffering is neither an impersonal fate nor a cut and dried moral punishment. We're implicated in a world of sin, sometimes ours and sometimes others, and therefore in a world of suffering. One of the issues that I often find myself at when I'm in a season of real difficulty of maybe in biblical language, trials or challenges or pains and sufferings is I'm quick to acknowledge God as deliverer. And so my prayers, my confession, my scripture preferences, everything goes to God, you're gonna deliver me out of this. And I believe, listen to me, I believe that is so true. And I believe God shows himself mightily on our behalf time and time again as a deliverer. But if I peel back that initial kind of public faith confession and belief that I have, and I look at what I really desire, what I'm wanting God to do is I'm wanting him to translate me. I'm in position A, would you translate me into position B? This translation process, like I want it to happen immediately. I'm gonna pray tonight. I'm gonna read the right verses. I'm gonna sing the right Maverick City worship song to declare the goodness of God. And so that when I wake up tomorrow, everything is gonna to be okay. I want A to B. 
And though God will do that sometimes, it seems his kind of MO, the way that he likes to work is not translation, but it's the idea of transformation, where we get the idea, the concept of this here is formation from, that God wants to mold and shape us into the people that he's calling us to be. The, the writer of the New Testament uses this language about us kind of being a vessels fit for the master's use, and that there's a way that the potter, the great potter, forms and pushes and prods in our lives and, and gets us to be the kind of person that he's inviting us to be, the kind of people that he's calling to himself. And I would say not that God initiates or that God is the maker of pain and suffering and problems, but that God in his goodness and sovereignty and grace will use them to develop something in our life that I would say otherwise we might not actually experience. For, for sheer commentary's sake, we don't have time to get into it, but one of the most famous psalms that people love to quote, memorize, have hanging over their fireplace as a banner in their home or precious moments dolls it's inscripted on, it's in a revealing reality and a troubling paradox that I think when we read it, we don't always understand what's going on. It's Psalm 23, and let me read it to you briefly. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's it, Noah. That's the message I want to hear. That's the God that I believe in. Still waters, restoration of my soul, paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's it. I love that. And then he goes on though, and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And here's the hinge point in all of Psalm 23. It's this line that he says, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy are gonna follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you see in Psalm 23 how that works? One of the most famous Psalms, some of probably the most famous verses in all of the Bible reveal the duality and the tension, the paradox that we live with in the human expression. What life offers us, still waters and death valleys. That within a few verses, David, who is claimed to be by God himself, a man after his own heart, after God's own heart, gets in just some of the most famous verses that we love to gravitate towards. The reality is there are moments, God, where you are going to provide and take care of, and I will be covered and protected by your goodness. And there are going to be times where I am walking through the most difficult seasons of my life. But what's connecting those two and makes it all okay is you are with me. The truth is for many of us, myself included, especially in the 21st century, maybe even especially in the West, is we're simply more acquainted with the God, of, the God of the mountaintop than the God of the valley. That's why the gospel in one sense is so scandalous. A God who reigns with power and authority, sure. A God who demands respect and worship as he sits on his throne, okay, of course. But a God who's among us, a God who hangs willingly on a cross, one who endures suffering a God who bleeds? No way. And this is, in one sense, if I could take a step back, one of the answers to the apologetic approach to people saying, if God is so good, why does he allow pain and suffering? There's a lot to answer to that, but one of the things that we can confidently say is we know that God is not indifferent to pain and suffering. 
We know that God is not removed from it. Well, how do you know that? Because he chooses to interject himself in our pain and suffering to let you and I know I am close by. Remember one of Jesus's names is Emmanuel, God with us. And so we see in the beauty of Golgotha, in a few months here as we celebrate Easter, we see the hanging reality. Here is where I am with you. And I think before Jesus even expresses that, David knew that centuries earlier when he writes Psalm 23. There are moments I can see your provision and your peace. There's also moments that are of great difficulty. But God, in all of these things, I know that you are with me. Which moves us into the second reality, presence. I wonder if it's not the absence of trouble, but it's really rather the presence of something or of someone that is stronger and better in the midst of the pain and the trouble that we really ultimately want. As beautiful and as comforting as Psalm 23 might be, or the idea of God being with us, who Jesus is, it can also at times be really challenging because if I could be honest, I won't impose this on you, I'm much more content with the idea of what God is doing. Um, what, not God, well, sorry, let me reverse this for a second. I tend to find myself, okay, let, I'm just going to be really honest with you. I tend to find myself to be okay when I know God is doing something for me. And I don't care as much about the idea of God being with me. Meaning I will pray and I will feel a level of confidence and hope and faith, believing the verses that talk about God is fighting on my behalf, that God is at work, that God is going to deliver, that God is going to heal, that God is gonna bring a breakthrough, that God is going to provide. I personally am much more comfortable with God doing stuff for me. I'm a lot less content with the idea of just God being with me. But I think deeper in my soul and in humanity is not just we want the stuff done for us. We do really want actually somebody to be with us. And I think in Psalm 23 and throughout Scripture and the invitation of spiritual formation and discipleship is to have a heart for God and a heart with God in all things at all times. The challenge is most of us just don't suffer well. Most of us don't know how to process pain. We don't know what to do with it, especially within the Christian faith. Where do I put this? What compartment does it go in? Especially when it runs up against what I believe about God. I'm, I'm having a hard time reconciling this idea. A couple years ago, my son, Bear, he ended up getting sick with a fever. And um, if you're a parent in here, this might uh, kind of ring true for you. Um, when your kid gets sick and they don't get any sleep, that means you don't get any sleep. And my wife was out of town with our oldest at the time, so it was just me at home with our two youngest, Bear, and then our youngest, Sunday. Bear gets sick, and, and I have to sleep in his room with him when he's sick. And I knew, hey, if you don't get any sleep, I'm not going to get any sleep, so let me see if I can get you to take some medicine. The problem is, at that time, my son was so anti-medicine. The, the, the chances of him taking medicine straight up are equivalent to me being a walk-on tight end for the Cleveland Browns. It's just not going to happen. And so that night, I'm like, let me see if I can mix it in juice, right? All the stuff we try to do to disguise it. And I get him to sip just enough, and it puts him to sleep. But then in the middle of the night, he wakes up. And you may have experienced this before personally or if you're a parent. He wakes up with delusion. The fever has gotten to him where he's just like, he doesn't have any frame of reference for where he's at. 
he gets up out of his bed and just walks right into his closet. And I'm like, hey, buddy, come on, let's go lay back down, right? It's funny and troubling all at the same time. You're just like, Jesus' name, what's going on? I don't know, like you're right, you're pulling him. You lay back down. He falls asleep. I, I touch his head, take his temperature, and the fever's broke. It's awesome, great. He sleeps. Only for a couple hours later, me to wake up in the morning and for the fever to have returned. Later that day, I end up taking him to a doctor's appointment. And the doctor says, I just think it's a virus. It should pass, which actually later that day ended up passing. And, and I asked her, I said, can I, can I ask you a question? Because this has never happened to me before with one of our kids. Um, I gave him some medicine. And then in the middle of the night, he kind of woke up delusional, covered in sweat, like the fever broke, went into his closet. I rescued him out of there. I was like, hey, this isn't Narnia, buddy. Come on, we got to lay back down. I said, but then the fever came back. I was like, is that, is that normal? I was like, does he have a reaction to medicine? Should I not be giving him that because of what happened? And she says, oh, no, no, no. She said, what, what happened was you broke the fever artificially. What needed to happen is he needed to go through it to allow the fever to break naturally. And I thought, that's what I do when pain happens in my life. I am quick to look for whatever form of artificial convenience and ease I can add into my life because I don't want to have to go through it. I don't want to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I want to figure out how a helicopter can drop kind of like life flight me out of this in the moment. So what is it that I can then begin to be formed by in this moment that gives me, as we'll talk about in a moment, the peace that I so desperately want. And so I start to fill my schedule with busyness. I start to maybe feel the pain of loss financially. So I think, well, I'll pick up more hours. I'll try harder. I'm trying to make relationships work, whatever it might be. Some of us, we begin to numb our pain, when, whether that's through forms of narcotic or alcoholism. We see that, especially in our state. It's what we deal with fentanyl and the opioid addictions. We know the stories of how that happens. Nobody's in a pickup line on a Tuesday and says, you know what I should do? I think I should go get addicted to pills. What ends up happening is somebody goes through a surgery or some form of pain and then they're prescribed this medication to help them for a season get through it. But what ends up happening is there's an addiction that stirs and people become dependent on the thing that helps mask the pain because we don't want to go through it. We do the same thing spiritually and in our souls. And what happens is those things, they begin to deform us. I'm just going to, I'm going to zone out on Netflix for five hours a night. I'm going to use eating as an escape. I'm going to go back to a lifestyle that I once had because it seemed easier back then. Whatever I can do to avoid, in one sense, the death valley. Joe Phillip, in his article on suffering and silence, he writes this. It's a little long, but I, I think it's beneficial. He says, that is why we still cry out to God with our why. We beg, we plead, we bargain, we get mad. We say things like, why did you allow it, God? Why did you not stop that from happening? What's the point of all this? We ask these kinds of questions as if we really want an answer. However, try imagining what would happen if God actually showed up. Imagine if he strictly responded to your question of why and gave a very clear, direct response. Then what? Would we, as Dr. Peter Kreef points out, really be satisfied with any rational explanation to our question about suffering? Even if it is God's reason, which is the best possible reason from the best possible source, would that not stop him from leaving us with even more questions? Would we not, much like a child to a parent, ask, but why that? Would not every answer lead to another string 
of questions? If he indulged us and gave us more answers, would we not just go on asking questions? Could this be a sign that we want something more than rational answers, no matter how often we demand them? Maybe what we are longing for is not just a something, but a someone. Maybe the God who knows us better than we know ourselves knows this as well. And maybe that is why he does not often respond to our questions, especially when we are suffering. What suffering can do is it ultimately can reveal what we want from God. When I'm going through loss, when I'm going through trials, when I'm going through challenges, when I'm going through pain, I begin to see what it is I really want from God, and then in turn, what I really want for my own life. We didn't have time to get into it, but there's this verse that Paul writes in his letter in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, which I can get with. I'm like, I love that idea, power, that's awesome. But then he says, and I also want to know him in the pains of his sufferings, to which I'm like, eh, I could do without. Like, Paul, what are you, what, what, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Who wants to willingly go through the pain and the suffering? But I think Paul has a glimmer into relationship that oftentimes I miss. And maybe you do too. That it's, I want to be so close to God in the presence of him that I want everything that he offers. I want to know Jesus so well that I want to see the power moves. I want to see the miracles. I want to sense and know the beauty of who he is. And I want him so much. I want to even know what breaks his heart. I want to go through suffering with him as well. I want to go through pain. And in just one verse, Paul encapsulates the invitational life to discipleship to Jesus, to know him in every way so that he can also know you in every way. And we can live through the still waters and the death valleys together. It's the importance of presence. God, where are you? Is often the question we ask when we're going through difficulty. And sometimes I think the whisper is God saying, I'm right here. Just not maybe in the way that you want me to be. Or maybe I'm not doing what you want me to do. And maybe I need to teach you the value of presence over the value of provision. That for just a moment, we're going to see you through the other side of this, but there's something to learn. Oftentimes, instead of asking God why, maybe we could rephrase the question and say, God, what? Not why am I going through this? Not why did this happen? But God, what is it you're teaching me? God, what is it you're forming inside of me? God, what are some things that I don't know about myself that I can, I can find and be revealed when I'm going through this difficulty? During the rule of the Roman Empire, amidst all of the kind of periodic catastrophes that it would end up suffering through in its long history, there were ultimately none that were as bad as two different plagues that swept over all of the people up to a quarter of the population during each plague, during 165 AD and 250 AD, were really struck. And Gerald Sitzer, uh, who's a, a theology professor, writes in his book, A Water from a Deep Well, about the historical account during the plagues and the roles that Christians played in it. He writes, ironically, Christians survived the plagues at higher rates than pagans. Even though Christians were more willing to be exposed to the deadly contagion. Why? First, they cared for the sick. 
Such care ensured that a higher percentage of the afflicted would survive, even if there was no actual cure available. Basic nursing care, sips of broth, cold rags on the forehead, tender back rubs, a change of bedding, visits from loving friends strengthened the sick and helped at least some of them to overcome the disease. Second, Christians who survived became immune and thus provided a workforce of healthy people who were no longer susceptible to the disease. These survivors made themselves available to the sick, which in turn increased survival rates even more. And finally, Christians believed in, prayed for, and experienced miracles. Miraculous cures and demon exorcism occurred with enough frequency to leave an impression on pagans who interpreted these manifestations of power as evidence that the Christian God was real, thus making physically and dramatically visible the superiority of the Christian's patron power over all things. It's the power of presence in the midst of trouble that God is excellent in and calls his people to be in the midst of as well. There's nothing like going through something and then having somebody close to you come in and not try and give you all the answers, not try to figure it all out, but somebody to just be able to come in and to sit with you. Going back to that story about my son when he had broke the fever and she was like, well, you broke it artificially. It needed to break naturally. You know, in those couple of days that he was sick, he'd be laying down in his bed throughout the day. I'd be out in the living room trying to take care of our other daughter. And periodically, actually multiple times throughout the day, before him ever yelling out, dad, I want to feel better. Or even to the point of, dad, okay, I'll try medicine again. Over and over and over again, his cry from his room was, dad, I'm waiting for you. Dad, would you come lay down with me? Dad, where are you? And I think in his little body as he's fighting off a virus, what's coming out of his mouth is really the cry of all of our soul. Yeah, I'd love for this to be better. I'd love for this to go away. I just want to know that you're with me though. Like, are you actually here? Do you see what's happening, God? Are you familiar with this? Because if I know that you know, and I believe that you're good, it's easier for me to buy into the words of David that we're going to walk through the valley of death together. And I don't have to be afraid because you are with me. Being in the middle of pain and not running from it or trying to manufacture a way out does something to us that is deeply formational. And I would say this, supernatural which leads us all to where you would naturally be led to in this moment, Disney Plus and the movie WALL-E. And if you have not seen the movie, I'm gonna do a really poor job describing it to you, but for the sake of brevity, this is what's happening. Humanity has abandoned Earth and live on a giant spaceship because they just want to consume more, 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 and more. And so there is, quote, no life left on planet Earth. They're orbiting for centuries in this giant spaceship, and you get a glimpse into how they're living their lives where they've gotten so used to convenience and comfort, they don't even walk around anymore. They kind of uh, lay in these hover beds with these screens in front of them getting whatever they want whenever they want it. And I would say, if I could, say Wally and what Disney did gave us a prophetic insight into how humanity would prefer to exist. Give me the easy way. Make it comfortable. I don't want any difficulty. I just want what I want when I want it. I want the path, and listen, I do too, of least resistance. 
make this as simple as possible. But the challenge is when we look for ease, we are also choosing our pathway of formation, which ends up oftentimes forming us in some level of weakness and poor development. We end up being almost like a wall that has holes and cracks and a structural thinness to it that will not withstand the wind and the rain and ultimately the storms of life. When we stand in trouble and pain through the invitation of God, that he is with us, we get the opportunity to see the signs of life as well. Nicholas uh, Walterstoff, who's a philosopher and teaches at Yale, he lost his adult son in a tragic mountain climbing accident a number of years ago. And in his journal that he kept of his experience of grief, he wrote, and sometimes when the cry is intense, there emerges a radiance which elsewhere seldom appears. It's a glow of courage, of love, of insight, of selflessness, of faith. And in that radiance, we see best what humanity was meant to be. In the valley of suffering, despair and bitterness are brewed, but there also character is made. The valley of suffering is the valley of soul-making. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Final reality, peace. Jesus uses this word shalom, where we get our English word peace from, and it's defined by the idea of wholeness and completeness. It's what I, if I could say, fills the crack and the thin areas of that wall, and it does not by giving us all the answers and always providing what we think we want, Shalom is wholeness in our relationship with God first and foremost. And it's the filling of our lives with him, not just his stuff, not just relief, not making the trouble or the pain or the suffering go away immediately, at least maybe not when we want it to. And sometimes all of us probably have had moments where we can see the inbreaking of God quickly. More often than we like to admit, it seems to be a slow burn. It's in our lives filled with him ultimately the prince of peace that does us good. Fevers fight viruses, which in turn can build immunity. Loss can take away from us, but also open us up to a compassion and an empathy for others that we maybe never could have had. Sickness forces us to face our mortality and our humanness and be grateful for the life we do have in the times where we are healthy. Loneliness reveals to us the need for presence and community and to long for it and be vulnerable enough to put ourselves out there and to experience it. But the power and the peace or the shalom of the Holy Spirit also allows us to see the inbreaking of the kingdom of God through deliverance, through miraculous healings, through supernatural provision, and moments of prophetic encouragement and sensing the very real and tangible presence of God. Listen, as we close, I want all the good times. I want all the good things that God offers us. I want to see the kingdom of God. I want to see the rule and the reign of Jesus to be made right now, for every prayer to be answered immediately, for every hard situation to be resolved, for every body to be instantly healed, for any area that I experience lack, I want it to be filled to the full. But the reality of what is known as the kingdom of now and not yet is where we live. It is David's psalm that there are seasons of still water. And there are moments of death valleys. But in both, God is with us. Could it be that peace, that deep formation inside of me, the heart for God and heart with God, only comes from relationship? 
that Jesus attaches the promise of peace to proximity to him. In me, you will have peace. Later on in another portion, he says, my peace I give to you. Meaning there's this duality of saying, apart from me, you cannot have true peace. And you cannot have true peace apart from me. And so the invitation to be with Jesus through the practices and through the attempts and through living in and out of community and relationship and centering our mind and our faith on him is what propagates and promotes and stirs that peace inside of us. That I know God is with me in the good times and I know God is with me in the challenging times. All I would be asking of us this morning is to have a biblical vision of both victory and trouble. That we would live in the reality of what is known as the kingdom of now and not yet. That there is an inbreaking of the kingdom for the believers now, times of healing and breakthrough and deliverance now. And there is an eternity that has already been won. And there are times that we will go through trouble, not because God abandoned us, but because we are still in a world with an enemy of our souls and that God loves us and tells us and forewarns us that there will be difficulties. So don't be surprised by it and don't lose faith. I heard a preacher years ago that always stuck with me, made this statement. He said, the biggest problem that people have is thinking they shouldn't have any. Yeah. I'm often shocked when difficulty and problems come my way. And then I have to ask myself, why did you think you wouldn't have them? Why did you think life wouldn't throw curveballs? Why did you think it wouldn't be challenging? As we close in the book, The Spiritual Lives of Dying People, there's a story about a Catholic priest, his name's Paul Scaglione, whose ministry is to be with the terminal, terminally ill. And the story goes like this. Paul met a woman who had an inoperable stomach cancer. As she was divorced and had not remarried and was alienated from her family. She lived in a tiny bungalow in a blue collar neighborhood. She went in and out of the hospital and her only care came from neighbors and friends, plus a woman named Hillary who was in the local church and who visited the ill in their homes and from Paul the priest. The day she died in the hospital, she was surrounded by a nurse, the hospital chaplain and Paul. They held a vigil by her bedside, holding her hands and praying and crying with her. She was waiting for a visit from an estranged son, but he never came. And at the end, it felt right. Paul said. She died, but at her death, she had a deep confidence that God was with her. God was her strength and anchor. She trusted God. The moment of her death was completion. You could see it on her face. God transformed her suffering and took it upon himself. <sighs> no, man, if God is real, where was he at when my mom was suffering with cancer in the hospital? Maybe he was right there with her. Maybe he was taking his suffering, her suffering onto himself. And maybe the moment that she crossed over into complete wholeness, she found perfect peace because it was in still waters and through death valleys that God promises to be with us. Could I offer you an invitation as we close to just stand to your feet in a posture of prayer? Father, you know the deepest wounds in our hearts. You know the things that we hold so close. Father, you know the loss and the suffering and the pain and the difficulty that all of us have gone through and maybe some of us are dealing with right now. 
And so as we get ready to close in just a moment of worship, we invite you, Holy Spirit, would you come in and begin to, to really just minister to our hearts in the way that only you can. Uh, if you could hold your hands out in front of you for just a moment as a, a posture of giving this to God and also receiving what he has. God, would you begin to come in and for some of us make sense of the pain? For others of us, uh, it's been a real difficult season of suffering and, and attached to it's been a real doubt of your character and who you are. God, you're big enough to handle our doubt and our fear and our concern. So God, would you, um, would you by proximity just begin to invade in a way that only you can? That for those of us that really it's been difficult and our faith has wavered and it feels very fragile and thin. It feels like if one more thing happens, I don't know if I can keep doing this anymore. God, would you come in and this morning just begin to reaffirm, strengthen and build our faith in you. Lord, that even your manifest presence would fall on some that it feels like for so long they haven't felt you or known that you're close. We thank you for your kindness and your power as we give you a couple moments in worship. God, would you be the healer, the mender and the restorer of our hearts, the lifter of our heads, the one who redeems and makes right our souls. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name.